Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 233, The Torah of Jews of Color. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And our guests today are Ariel Korman and Mira Rivera. They are leaders of a relatively new initiative, Amud, the Jews of Color Torah Academy. In its own words, Amud provides Jewish education for Jews of color by Jews of color. Through access to Jewish education and Jews of color community, Amud creates channels for Jewish people of color to live most fully as members and leaders of the broader Jewish community, creating space to celebrate marginalized customs and traditions, uncover lost histories, and rebuild culture. Ariel Korman is the co-founder and executive director of Amud. She's a Jewish educator, performer, and perpetual student who is a former Fulbright Research Fellow and has taught at the National Chavara Institute, door-to-door tutoring, and was the 2019 featured teacher at the Jewish singing retreat, Let My People Sing. Mira Rivera is a board member of Amud, where she also serves as resident rabbi. She has rabbinic ordination from the Jewish Theological Seminary and serves as a rabbi at New York's Romamu. She is also a board-certified chaplain. Mira Rivera is also co-chair of the Rabbinical Council of Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, JFREJ, and the co-founder with Renee L. Hill of Harlem Havruta, a brave space for Jews of color, allies, and co-conspirators in partnership with the community of St. Mary's Episcopal Church. A professional dancer with the Martha Graham Dance Company before rabbinical school, she taught hundreds of New York City public school children through the National Dance Institute. Ariel Korman, Mira Rivera, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. So good to be here. Thank you. We're really excited to talk about Amud. It's such an interesting and important project. I'll give a little bias in that I'm really interested in this in particular because I've been on the board of Svara for many years, which is the yeshiva, the Torah Academy, the Talmud Academy for LGBTQ folks, or that comes out of the experience of LGBTQ Q folks, it's probably a better way to say it. And when I first heard about Amud, I was so excited to hear that there was something that seemed similar from a Jews of color perspective. So it's something that I've really wanted to explore for a long time that both of us have, and and we're really thrilled to finally have this opportunity. So Mira, I was wondering if we could start with a little bit of the origin story of Amud. So in 2018, I was invited to be um, in the Sela Cohort 15 of Bend the Ark, for Jews of color, by Jews of color. And um, there I met Yabila McCoy. Well, I actually met her the year uh, previously. And part of that training was a study that we that she called JOC Torah Academy. And it was several afternoons where we would look at text from an anti-oppression lens and at the end of that cohort, I was sitting with Yehuda Webster, who was part of the cohort. We looked at each other and I said, why does this have to be only part of this training? We need this to be real. And so we started talking. We t- started talking about that. So that was May of 2018. 
By June or July, Ariel Corman had come back from Israel. I pass it to you. I did a Fulbright year in Israel. I lived um, in Haifa and Jerusalem. And when I came back, I became involved uh, in JFRJ, which is Jews for Racial and Economic Justice. Um, and JFRJ has a, a Jews of Color Caucus. Um, so as part of my involvement with JFRJ, I was connected to Yehuda Webster. And I approached Yehuda saying that I wanted to teach a small class on the politics of Hebrew pronunciation. And I wanted to teach it for Jews of color. Um, and, and Lex, I see that you're smiling um, because yes, it is immensely nerdy, deeply nerdy. Um, and it, it felt deeply important. Um, but Yehuda one-upped me and he said, what if instead of uh, just having your class, we actually create a container for this kind of learning to happen more often? And so that really launched the idea of uh, Jews of Color Torah Academy, which became Amud, the Jews of Color Torah Academy. And we started out by uh, every other week having a person in the community, a, a Jewish person of color in the community, teach whatever they wanted. Um, and we, we started our first beta run and really got to see what, what kinds of topics were interesting, how did the groups of people who showed up for different topics differ, you know, and, and we basically got to conduct all this research. Uh, we launched our first full year after the high holidays this past fall um, in, in 2019, um, and we just completed our first full year of classes. We got here because for as long as there have been Jewish people of color navigating predominantly white Jewish space, the roots have been growing and deepening. People like Yehuda and myself were able to found something like this because of all that work that had been happening, um, Jews of color entering white Jewish spaces, being in white Jewish spaces, and also getting to know one another. So I, I want to dive into something I saw on your website, which I think will help us break this conversation open in the best ways. You have an FAQs section. I love the frequently asked questions sections of organizational websites. I'm that level of nerd. Um, so we are on this page, and there's a beautiful question that I think jam-packs about 100 different themes into it, which is, is the programming all religious? Um, is Amud, is all of Amud's programming religious? And I love that question. I love that it could be heard in many different ways. But the, the answer is really interesting, too, which is that you say we have a broad definition of the word Torah. Um, and you say a little bit about that there, but I'd love to open it up to you now. Your Torah Academy, what is Torah from your perspective, um, and how does that embed itself into sort of the day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month cycle of like what people actually learn and do through Amud? Torah is wisdom, um, and wisdom for us is both traditional text, the uh, Torah so the five books of Moses, that's prophets, um, that is ketuvim, which is writings, other writings, um, and commentaries that have been made on those writings over the, over the ages, anything that's been written in a Jewish language. And now we sort of get broader and broader and broader. I'll tell a brief story, which is that I was in the rare book room at Columbia University, which is just a, a magical place. I was reading a yeshiva student's notebook from Morocco in the 17th century. And um, 
I was able to do that, and it took a really long time, through looking at different Hebrew fonts, trying to make my way through it word by word. But I realized as I was doing it um, that through my own journey, I had gotten access to enough Hebrew that I was able to be in that room, know what to look for, um, and begin decoding this wisdom. So in that moment, I really thought the canon is much bigger than I think it is. Um, there's so much Jewish writing and um, moments of Jews engaging with traditional wisdom that is available. And so I, that is to say that I think the, the line between what is traditional writing and what is the lived wisdom of people in the community, it's a blurry line. Um, and I think that there's a continuum. So at Amud, Torah also means wisdom that comes from a person's life, particularly wisdom that comes from a person's life in conversation with traditional text. What is traditional text? That's a big question. And I think we've been limited, particularly in the Ashkenazi-dominated white Jewish world in America. Um, we've been limited when we think about where we derive authority um, when we look at a text and, and what is canonical. I remember this one incident at Romamu where I work, and it was during a time when we had just moved into the new Romamu Center across the street from the church where we have davened for many years. And so every time we would do a service, we would have to bring Torah back and forth, right? Back and forth across the street, across West 105th. And so that for that evening, Rabbi David had said, you know, we don't need to do the traditional service. We will dive deeply into some of the texts, do some chanting. Then lo and behold, through the service, and he said, and now we will stand and open the Torah, uh, open the Aaron Kodesh. And when we did open the Aaron Kodesh, it was empty. And we were like, oh, my gosh. We forgot to bring the Torah from across the street. We didn't know we were going to actually use it that evening. And when that happened, we all turned to each other in a circle and, um, and we did the barhu to each other. So that, that realization of Torah as being held in the people in the room is palpable. And we do bring the narratives of our people. We make time for the narratives of our participants. It is not a waste of time. It's not like, ah, uh, tick, 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 tick. You know, we really have to move on with the program. We make space for that because oftentimes in, in non-JOC spaces, really, there's no time for us. You raise your arm and then somebody says, great question. Let's put that in the parking lot. I waited 10 years, 15 years. When we talk about a Jews of Color Torah Academy, what is it that a Jews of Color Torah Academy needs to accomplish that isn't accomplished, for example, by having Jews of Color in other Torah Academies? You know, B'nai Lapi talks about uh, a sort of Prometheus story where she went to JTS. I think of it as like to steal fire from the gods. You know, she talks about to steal Torah from the movement that wasn't accepting at that time, wasn't accepting gay and lesbian Jews. But 
now in a time when gay and lesbian Jews are being accepted, right, there still is obviously a need for an LGBTQ Torah Academy. Savara is doing better than it ever has before. And so I'm wondering, as you think about a Jews of color Torah Academy in a world in which Jews of color are able to go to other Torah Academies, what is it that's really the, the driving the most important reasons for that in, in your mind? And what what do you dream of? I mean, you know, what, what, what do we imagine that this can become one day? Uh, you know, and how, how, I know that I'm asking like a million questions, but like how will the Jewish world change, whether it's for Jews of color in particular or the larger Jewish world? Like how would you want things to change if Amud is as successful as it can possibly be? The first thing I'll say is that you can't discount the emotional and intellectual power of a for us, by us space. There are stories, but there's also intuition and intellectual discoveries that happen in a for us, by us space that may not happen in another space. And different Torah will arise out of other kinds of coalition spaces. Um, So it's not to say, you know, majority white Ashkenazi Jewish communities, don't worry about including us, we've got our own thing. No, the, the answer is yes, and there are different reasons to be in different kinds of configurations. I'll say, for example, I've never been in a Torah learning setting where colonization has come up so much. And when it comes up, there is overwhelmingly not a sense of defensiveness in the room, not a sort of internal nervousness about saying the wrong thing because people of color are in the room, for example. It's special, the kind of things that can come out. I will also say that um, I did Ben the Ark's Sela cohort as well. And Shahana McKinney from Adult Midwest spoke to us and um, many, many times during her presentation repeated that JOC space is coalition space. JOC space is coalition space. And it's true. I think we get seen as an affinity space. And there are some ways in which that may be true by certain definitions, but the reality is that we are coalition space. We have vastly different identities. You're here speaking to two non-Black Jews, and we are also Jews of color, you know? Um, So there are categories that we choose for different configurations, but in the end, we're really just deciding which, which configuration, which coalition do we need to be in at which time, for wisdom to come out. Um, and so one, one thing that I really hope to see in the Jewish world broadly is many configurations of Jewish identity space um, and other ways of breaking down, you know, who's in the room and what they're bringing. But I wanna see manyness. Um, we, we started out our year at Amud uh, talking about the Erev Rav, the mixed multitude of people and peoples who, who cross the Red Sea. What does it mean to be an Erev Rav even when everybody in the room is Jewish? I'm holding two things. I'm holding the importance of encouraging and acknowledging multiplicity in a room and also acknowledging boundary. What is the shape of the container we're creating? There has to be a shape for there to be some kind of containment and, and to really see what's in the room. I think often when we say everyone is welcome, Sometimes that can mean nobody is welcome because there aren't systems in place when harm is enacted from white leaders at the top of the room. 
there's a culture that we want to develop. We bring our languages, we bring our cuisine, we bring the stories of our elders, we bring our marginalizations, we bring our success stories, our journey stories outwardly into the space. We know whom we stand before. And on a meta level, yes, you know, know before whom you stand. There are two places that, um, that we come from. There are those who come deeply religious. And I say to you, deeply, deeply touch you in the heart at the core religious. And there are those who are coming deeply, deeply in justice spaces. And the passion they, that they come in into, into the room with is really palpable. I love the reference to know before whom you stand. Related to that, I want to ask about the whom. I, I, whenever I'm in a congregation, I, I wander around sometimes to different congregations and whether I'm leading a service or a Torah study, and many of them have in their sanctuary that phrase that you just talked about, know before whom you stand in big letters on the ark. And whenever I'm in one of those spaces, every time, this is actually a practice of mine, I say to the community, okay, we're sitting in rows or standing in rows. Know before whom you stand, turn behind you and say hi, because you should know the person before whom you're sitting. And what I'm doing with that is I, I'm trying to take sort of this intense quote, it's clearly meant to be talking about God, right? Like, know that you are standing before God. No, that's the one who before whom we are standing. But I think hearing it as, ah, know the person you're standing in front of. Like, introduce yourself. Let's have a friendly space is important. And so on that note, I kind of just want to ask about the who here. Like, who are we talking about? Who? So what ages are most um, present in your spaces? Um, I think there's this danger sometimes where when we're talking about Jews of color spaces, um, often it remains very abstract. And we don't want to talk about like the specifics of people's identities, where they're from, where they're not from. I, I really appreciate that you mentioned that you're both Jews of color and you're both non-Black Jews. Um, like, What are some of those dynamics in the spaces? How can we get a better sense of, of who this space is celebrating and shared by? Not that that won't change over time, not that there won't at any given point and in any given course be a constant evolution of those facts, but like, Who's sort of there? Like, who who is most utilizing this resource since it's so new? And I guess to the extent you know this, who are you, like, looking to reach moving forward? We are an intergenerational space. That's where I'll begin. Um, we have elders who show up in our space. Um, when we were meeting in person before the pandemic, um, we had people coming sometimes from definitely other boroughs, but from other cities. People would travel to get to Amud because there hasn't been a space like it, and that's not to say Amud will always be the only space. Or Amud is by Amud is by no means the only Jews of color for us by a space that is in this country, and we we celebrate and are so excited by the development of every JOC organization that pops up. But there's still a, a hunger, and people came from a, a long ways away. Um, we also have uh, younger folks. We're currently in an adults-only organization. Um, that's where our capacity is right now. And also, we're lucky enough to have other organizations in our world, like JMN, the Jewish Multiracial Network, that specialize more in family programming. Um, so we don't have to do everything 
So we're, we're an adults-only program currently, um, but that doesn't mean that a teenager who's interested in coming and feels good coming is not welcome. We have queer participants, trans participants, disabled participants, and actually a goal for this year is to increase our accessibility further. Um, before the pandemic, we were already um, partially in person and partially on Zoom, and we were experimenting with uh, ways to make that work better to have some people in the room and some people on Zoom. So it's interesting that I now hear lots of people talking about um, how that might work moving forward uh, as potentially certain places reopen. Um, so accessibility is, is a core value for us. Um, our board is not a traditional board in that uh, its main role is recruitment. We're stronger the more people we have and the more engaged uh, our people are. Fundraising is obviously extremely important. Uh, we live in a, in a society where that is so, um, but we're also really trying to invest in our relationships. So our board um, is comprised of folks who have varied identities. We have black Jews in leadership and also the task of being a space that recognizes anti-blackness um, and and does everything in its power to be a pro-Black space um, is something that I am taking really seriously as a non-Black leader. Um, and I will just say that we are striving to be that. Can I claim that we are perfect? Absolutely not, but I can claim that I am um, accountable to Black Jews in the community and in the Amud community, on the Amud team and beyond. I will just also say that we try to be as financially accessible as possible. So all of our courses are fully sliding scale. If you can pay $0, you pay $0. And that's a commitment that we have in all of our programming. That is essential to me, um, especially, not only, but especially in JOC spaces where so many Jews of color have been economically disenfranchised on this land. Um, and, and that's a task then, you know, on, on the administrative end that we have to uphold and and make sure that we're in a good place to be offering that always. So there was one evening, I remember, there were three parent and child configurations in the class. It wasn't planned. And one of the fathers who had come because his daughter invited him said, I had given up on Jewish spaces. It's really, really moving to see on their own, they're coming because they're, these parents are coming because they're, their children are excited, right? Their adult children are excited and want to just fortify their, their Jewish identity and their Chinese identity and their Caribbean identity, right? And this was a place where you will not be um, you will not be othered when you walk into the room. Well, how Jewish are you? That is extremely exhausting. It drains us. It cuts us off at the knees. It is traumatic. And when it happens in Jewish spaces, it is like a double slam onto my shins because I just want to pray. And you just can't. Another question, though, about who we are in this space. People say, well, do you have children's programming? Uh, we recognize right now that 
um, other organizations like Bicholashon are better with with, uh, with young people's programming. And so we just say, we would support you. We would send our people to your camps, you know, when when we go back to ye old camp mode. But also certain needs have arisen. For example, just be, when COVID hit, we heard of this this uh, young Jew of color who was on his way to Israel to do uh, to, to become a bar mitzvah at the Kotel, and he couldn't. So we were asked, could we arrange a bar mitzvah for this for this gentleman, for this young man, and we did. So as per the need of the community, we will do ritual and we will respond. So I, I was wondering if we could uh, dive into a little Torah, actually, just to get a little bit of a sense of of what content actually has been emerging. I, I think a lot, again, you know, from the LGBTQ perspective, a lot of times people talk about what happens in the Svara space. Well, you know, of course, there are certain texts that, you know, have been interpreted as LGBTQ friendly or recognizing something, right? For example, Ruth and Naomi or David and Jonathan, right? But that's, Benet always talks about how that's just the surface level. That's like the shot, as you say, the surface level of LGBTQ text. And so I'm wondering if we could explore some of that from a Jews of color perspective, in part what what you have been teaching, what your intent is, but also I'm really interested, have there been things that surprised you where you were studying a text and all of a sudden one of the students saw something in the text that, you know, nobody has ever seen before, maybe in 3,000 years, you know, because we haven't been we haven't been giving Torah in a particular community, you know, so I'm, I'm really, really fascinated to hear some stories from the field. Recently in a Parsha study, a gathering to study a specific section of the Torah, um, we read Parshat Pinchas, which is a Parsha that includes an extremely brutal murder of a Midianite woman, Cosby, and themes of ethnic identity, inside outsider, colonizer colonized are extremely strong in this moment. Um, but what I want to focus on, you know, more than the individual stories that came out is the feeling in the room, in the Zoom room. Um, before anyone spoke or responded to the passage we were reading, there was just this really deep, solemn feeling. And you could see the faces of the people in the room. And just the energy was extremely low and reverent. That feeling, if we were to sort of dive into that feeling, to me defines so much of what a mood is and can be. Even Jews of color whose families have been Jewish since before anyone can remember may find themselves and often find themselves proximate to the experiences of non-Jews entering Jewish space or assumed to be non-Jewish. And so, um, so I'm still holding that energy from the room. I'm still holding it. I'm still holding the pain. Um, and also the elation that I also felt in the room that here was a space where the pain could come up and it could be heard. A brief content warning, we're about to hear a fairly graphic and specific description of that instance of violence by Pinchas towards Zimri and Cosby in the Book of Numbers. So to even set up 
that study of Parashat Pinchas, you know, showing this couple, this forbidden relationship and this image of, yes, that a spear would be thrown through the woman's reproductive organs to spear them. In another Torah space, another Torah study, they would just go, let us just go through that. And actually, let's just go to Benot Tzalafchad, for goodness sakes. This narrative of the daughters of Tzalafchad standing up for themselves and claiming their right to inherit. Because that's the easier, that's the easier part of that Torah reading. But no, we would actually sit with this. We, we sat with it. And it was, like Ariel said, it was sacred space. I feel the need to just like broadcast to the world, since you brought up Parshat Pinchas, you brought up this really important moment in the Torah cycle where you mentioned how the 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 energy of the room changed and there was a reverence, there was a recognition that this was a pain point for people. I mean, at the beginning of that Torah portion, it's not only that this terrible murder happens, it's that God is pleased about it. And it's a really catastrophically hard Torah portion. Um, I thank you for bringing up how it can be hard from the vantage point of a Jew of color. As somebody who is in an interfaith relationship, it's also really hard from that perspective. And I feel like the need to say to anybody, anybody leading a Torah study, I actually led a Torah study on Pinchas myself um, this year, just when it rolled around. And I had a choice of leading. It was during my week-long summer intensive with my rabbinical school online. And I had a choice to lead like anything. I could have led all sorts of services on Shabbat. And like, I signed up for that Torah study because I was like, if I don't do it, I am nervous that somebody leading it is going to do what you described and just sort of not recognize the deep pain of that moment for so many people in the room. And so I was like, that's what I would, I'll volunteer for that thing. And so to anybody who's ever approaching that Torah portion ever, like odds are in your room of, of Jews and their loved ones, there are a lot of people who are feeling immense pain at that moment. And if you don't notice it, and if you don't name it, and if you don't really sit with it, you're doing a disservice to not only the people who feel that pain, but to the people who don't, to the people who, who haven't been opened up to their friends and family members and loved ones that are feeling that pain. So I just wanted to say that as a as a statement, not as a question. I hope that I hope that that's okay to to put that in. Um, now the question, different note. Um, also on the who the the who questions about who is a part of the space and all that. Um, we've been doing this great unit on looking at different organizations by for Jews of color, and um, one thing we haven't explicitly talked about so much that I really think we need to is there's this assumption out there that people hear Jews of color and they assume not Ashkenazi. Um, it's like two separate realms of our, of our mental, it's like if you, however our mental accounts work or mental circle, like Jews of color are over here in our heads, Ashkenazi Jews are over there in our heads. And the reality of it is definitely not that. Um, there are a ton of Jews of color who are Ashkenazi. And I am curious how that, like, and Ashkenormativity is still a huge problem, of course, of course. Um, but how does that element of who's in the space influence how you approach various issues, whether that's if a Yiddish something comes up, whether that's like, how does that play into a space that is for Jews of color, some of whom are Ashkenazi and some of whom are not? 
I think it's really interesting to address this really now as a family, <laughs> because here we are, we are actually, um, we are that kind of family. So I converted and I married an Ashkenazi person. And um, as I was applying to rabbinical school, so way, 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 way forward, right after my conversion and my kids had been born and all that, a rabbi who was on um, the preliminary interview asked me, so exactly where did your family come from before they came to the United States and before your ancestors got to the Philippines, right? So I said, Spain, definitely from my grandmother's side, um, from my maternal um, side. That's three that I was already managing, a person who converted, a person who thought, oh, out of spiritual yearning, I want to convert, even if my husband, my boyfriend then said, you know, you don't really have to do this. And then being a gare, a person who converted in Jewish spaces. And I say this very clearly, gare, because they let you know you were a gare. And I was like, cool, no problem. Lots to learn, lots to do. I got a long life. And then marrying into an Ashkenazi family where the Ashkenazi needs and, and history, I embraced to the point that in rabbinical school, people were like, why are you bringing this stuff up? When I lived the Shoah, the Holocaust, I lived that heritage, right? Because of, of our, my marriage. And then Ariel Corman. Yeah, so this is, this is just for, for anyone listening who doesn't know, um, Rabbi Mira is my mother. And the great uh, reveal. Yeah, the great reveal. But I, I think, you know, there's so much to say about that, um, and I will I will just sort of harken back to a moment um, that Rabbi Mira brought up about a time when we were three in the room. We were three parent-child groupings, and so it just just emphasize that it really is an intergenerational space and a space where we consciously are working to uplift our elders. To your question, Lex, that you were asking about, um, you know, how how do we hold? Dynamics that exist among uh, Sephardi, Ashkenazi, Mizrahi folks in the in the space, and how we handle all those dynamics. I will just say that it it is dynamic boundaries around who gets identified as a Jew of color in Jewish spaces are complicated, and we embrace that messiness, and we also embrace Ashkenazi and Mizrahi leadership. Um, on our team. And, and I will also just say for myself, I'm a lover of languages. Currently, we are teaching Hebrew and we're, we have a real focus on Hebrew right now at Amud. Um, we have people in the community who are Yiddishists, um, who are excited about Yiddish, who are excited about Ladino and Arabic. Um, and we're going to do everything we can to make everybody who wants to feel included at Amud included, and it's gonna take time. Um, we're gonna build up our capabilities. Um, we're gonna try not to move faster than we should um, because we also have a value of resisting white supremacy culture, which to us means learning to move slower than capitalism would ask us to, and that is hard. Um, that is complicated, but also a value. 
On a related note, I, I wanted to ask you about the the post-COVID world of Amud, because it, it feels like, you know, if this had been six months ago, I think I might have said to you something like, well, I, there's a lot of Jews of color that don't, that don't live in New York, you know, so what's what are we going to do for them? You know, like what, in other words, like once, and, and it relates to what you just said in terms of, you know, the pressure is always, I mean, from funders and everybody, the pressure is always, you have a great idea, let's help you scale it up. And that's not always the right the right move, especially when you're trying to also invent something. So I'm sensitive to both both parts of this, but I'm, I'm curious about that in general. Like, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about aspirationally, where do you hope a mood will be one day? Or if it's not a mood also, right? I mean, a larger coalition that, that really has to do with learning for Jews of color. But I'm also curious whether the COVID situation and being forced to go online has actually accelerated your move in a particular direction of actually being able to reach Jews of color everywhere they are, and kind of how's that? How's that going? You know, what what are you finding there? I think in many ways the way we have reached more Jews of color this time, it's not so much as okay, it's going to be Amud that is going to reach out to everybody, but rather we have been in partnership with uh, with other. POC, JOC led organizations. So that's in many, that is in many ways the, the MO that, that we've done this, uh, that we've implemented this post COVID, no, during COVID times is that we would be in partnership with, with organizations around the country. We don't have to be, uh, to be everything, to be a shul, to be, to be a Shiva, to be, uh, you know, savvy online, to be, on top of everything, because in partnership with, um, with, with the other organizations, we'll cover something, right? If we can't do it, EDOT can. If not, the people out in the Bay Area can. We received some feedback from someone who'd been attending courses uh, for the entire year that us fully being online um, made this person feel uh, more cared about than when we were partially in person and partially online and online felt like an afterthought. So this is just, you know, bringing you a little bit into our process of growth. Um, I think something that was really special about, well, there were so many things that were so special about having a physical space to be in. Um, there was dinner every time, full dinner, not snacks that matters. You know, so I, I am definitely mourning that ability, but there is so much that we have gained um, in terms of accessibility and really reaching people across the country, uh, like Rabbi Mira said. So at our recent, I think to demonstrate sort of how interconnected and dependent we are on other organizations, we had a recent seminar that Yavila McCoy from Dimensions led. Um, two other JOC-led organizations, Adult Midwest and Mitsui Collective, um, joined forces to create a Midwest cohort that would come uh, and participate in our programming and then also meet separately. We are stronger the more interconnected we are. And wow, where would I like to see a mood? If I really kind of scale out and, and look at the landscape, I'm so excited about many different JOC led organizations popping up in the Jewish world. And I, I really think adopting a philosophy of abundance, not scarcity when possible. Obviously that's 
more easily said than done. But I think when possible, just trying to see what, what are the possibilities when we are actually lifting each other. Um, so that's, that's what I want to see. And I think in terms of being online and being in person, I think we'll see. I mean, we are standing in front of this sort of chasm of uncertainty. We, as in not just Amud, but everyone. So I don't know what, what this place is going to look like. But what I do know is that we're investing in our relationships with Jews who live all over. Mira, I, I'm interested in um, a question for you based on your experience going to rabbinical school and just sort of this question of like from the other side of this deep learning journey. I'm curious, could you describe in some way your aspirations as to let's say content, you know, meaning like, what is it that you imagine, you know, one day, however many students there may be, whether it's a hundred or a million, uh, what is the, what is the hope that you have for, for what people are really learning, what they're engaged with? And, you know, as you sort of think about a curriculum, I guess I'm asking. Maybe like two pronged or maybe, you know, multi-pronged. Yes, I do want to see some of the traditional learning, which is really learning, learning the Hebrew, learning the concept of Meforshim, of, of commentators, and, uh, yes, bringing in rabbinic literature and also like seeing like, wow, yes, in the same way that our, our rabbis found stories to be, you know, to be compelling, I see the same thing too that our, that our students would be compelled by stories, by Agadah. So seeing that there are replicable models, but also power dynamic studies. And I personally would like that language to flow from my lips in the same way as text will flow. For myself, having been so lucky to have been actually mentored um, by, uh, by rabbis during my internships and with my experience as um, a board certified chaplain, and clinical pastoral education, that is something that we would also like to offer. Anybody who listens to us frequently will know that one of my fave things is titles of things and names, names, titles, um, various signifiers. And I, I try very hard not to let any new organization pass on by an episode without telling us the backstory of their name. Um, not just because I think they're often interesting, but uh, but because they're usually very well thought out and sometimes very layered in ways that people in public might not understand. And the word amud is layered. I, I have some guesses as to some of the kinds of statements you're looking to make with with that name, um, and also to some extent with Torah Academy, but I think to English speakers, that's a little more intuitive. Um, why Amud? Why of all the names did you choose Amud? Um, it's, it's not one of those Hebrew words that's thrown around on the name of every organization and, and its next door neighbor. It's not Bethel. It's not like, like, why, why this word Amud, which I'm purposely not translating yet. I'm going to let you do it because I'm curious which translation um, you'll prioritize. Um, so, yeah, what's going on there? What's this name? And maybe how, as we close, does it help to encapsulate um, what you're doing moving forward and, and already? Yes, I, I love that you asked this question. and I love how kind of deliciously layered so many words are. It's such a joy. Amud. Amud can mean a pulpit. This is the, the lectern 
this is the place from which new wisdom comes. Amud is also a page, right? So that, that's an allusion to out the learning that we're doing and also the idea of a new page. What does it mean to continue to write the story of the Jewish people with a new page? And um, I also will just highlight the, the meaning of Amud as a pillar or a column. If the Jewish people is a structure, then we need every pillar and every column to be solid, cared for, repaired when it's broken, loved, tended to, right? Um, and if it's unstable, it will fall and the entire thing will come crashing down. Um, so that really is an allusion to our interdependence. Uh, I'll leave it there for now. And we are a mood in the world these days. We have become a Yes, mood. I was just going to do that. I, I do the interlingual things all the time. I, I, that's beautiful. Um, especially given the, the layers of mood as a one-word phrase in like contemporary online culture as a comment. Like, love it, love it, love it. Thank you both so much. Um, everybody, go to Amud's website. Learn what, they've, learn what they've got going on. Tell your friends. This is incredible work you're doing. Thank you so much for having us. What a thrill. What, what a wonderful way to be together. And thank you. So the last thing before we go, uh, if folks are looking to learn more to support, how do they do it? You can visit us at our website, which is amud.org. Um, that's A-M-M-U-D.org. Um, financial contributions are so important. That's what keeps us going and able to pay our people well. But beyond that, tell people about Amud. Join, if you're a Jewish person of color and you want to be part of us and you're, you've got questions or what whatnot, reach out. Um, we'd love to have you. And also, if you're not a Jewish person of color, um, still spread the word to your networks. You don't know if maybe it's not the thing that your friend who's a Jewish person of color wants, but it, it is what their sibling wants. We're really, really trying to get uh, the word out to as many Jews of color who could benefit from this space. Um, so don't be afraid to, to spread the word, even if you're not a Jewish person of color. We'd really appreciate that. Absolutely. We encourage you to spread the word about Amud. Head to amud.org, A-M-M-U-D.org, and let your friends know, let your family know, let everybody know that this exists so that their work can spread its wings and reach as many folks as possible. Um, we're going to close out this episode in the same way that we always do, by encouraging you to be in touch with us, and there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our Twitter feed at at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com, and also you can check out our other website, JewishLive.org. And last but not least, you can hit us up via email at Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. We also just recently launched an Instagram account, so we really hope that you'll follow us on there. Also, just Judaism Unbound is our name. That's our name on pretty much all of our social media. And uh, the last request we'd make is that if you're able to, we really deeply appreciate any amount of financial support that you can send our way. And you can do that via JudaismUnbound.com slash donate or JewishLive.org slash donate. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound. <laughs>